Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today, we're going to have a repeat guest on, that's Hobbs Megaray, and he was on episode, I believe it was 110, yes, 110, and uh, had a really great conversation exploring a lot of this history and, and the context that sets up this conversation, so I'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to that one if you haven't already. But when we were having that conversation, we, we went, gosh, close to an hour and a half and didn't even get into too much of what you're doing at your ranch here today. You, you had a lot of, we had a lot of great ta- conversation around your history and stuff. And so I wanted to not try and shorten, I wanted to do justice to the conversation of what you're doing at your ranch today. And so that's why we decided to reschedule and have another one. And I appreciate you giving me some more time out of your day today, but thank you for joining me and welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Um, I'm very happy to be here, Jared. Thank you so much for having me. And you'll have to uh, extend the appreciation to the calves who are a little bit late on their move this morning. <laughs> yeah. Yes, will do. Very much appreciated. Yeah, well, I don't, they, they talk about the best, you probably move multiple times anyway, but later in the day when the sun gets going, higher bricks reading, they might enjoy the feed a little more in a later move anyway. So, uh, well, they get, they get, uh, my, my yearlings are getting four moves a day right now anyway. Sure. So they, <laughs> so they get the nice high bricks anyway. Yes. Good, good, good. Well, that's that's actually one of the very topics that I wanted to talk to you about was your management of your land. We kind of had a lot of almost philosophical or theoretical, not theoretical, but philosophical discussions and stuff in the last time, along with your history and, and your building of your enterprises and stuff. But we didn't get a lot into your land management. So this is kind of a good segue talking about your four times a day moving. Maybe give a little insight as to how you're managing your ranch, the different groups of livestock that you're managing on it today and, and how you different, you know, how you manage them each day. Uh, differently well sure right now uh it's sort of an interesting opposite of what would be happening normally it's calving season so the cattle the mother cows are spread out quite a bit uh moving them somewhere between every three four days and every five six days something like that and the yearlings the the butcher animals they're on a really tight four times a day move because we're right now at the height of cool season and those cool season grasses, I need to have them eating as much of the plant as possible to get a really nice, good balanced ration. So if I were to turn them loose in the quest of, you know, increased gains, they would just be eating the leaves and the high energy parts of the the plants and end up with a much higher protein load than would be beneficial for overall weight gain. So, uh, by forcing them to eat competitively right now, um, then they get a much better ration and put on weight better. That will change, however, as we move into the warm season where and and when the calving season is over, where the the cattle will be moved between two and four times a day, and the butcher animals will be moved far less, maybe once a day. And they will then be on a modified leader follower um, cadence where the mother cows will do the ultra high density non-selective grazing or the total grazing program if you're a Jaime Elizondo follower and 
on the opposite side of the rotation, the butcher animals will be, you know, having a more selective grazing experience. Hmm. So it's a, so the program is, you know, highly adaptive if you want to use that language. And the, I suppose the thing that separates us from the vast majority of regenerative ranchers is that at least one of our, our crews, the, the mother cows during the warm, during the green growing season, as well as during the stockpile season, we do not leave any residual. You don't leave any residual with one of the groups at any time you're saying? Oh, that's good. I, I leave some residual with the yearlings of the butcher animals simply because during the warm season, the, the grass is so low in octane that we want them to continue to, to gain weight. Yeah. Whereas the, the mother cows, we don't leave any residual with them. We have them grazing at uh, very competitive stocking densities and we, uh, we take all of the forage. We, get, we aim for a 90 plus percentage harvest efficiency rate. Can you ex- talk about that? I forget now if in the last episode you talked about this total grazing model. I'm guessing that's kind of what you're referring to. Can you explain a little bit more in depth what that philosophy is and maybe how sure. it differs from what a lot of people are doing or thinking? Right. Well, with danger and getting to, I guess, what Freud called the uh, the narcissism of small differences, um, we uh, one of the, the, I guess, the main separator is that we are aiming to recreate what you might say a Pleistocene savanna environment would have um, absorbed with a a myriad of huge animals being pursued by a huge variety of terrifying animals. So that you know that ground would have been impacted and had a much higher efficiency rate than the vast majority of areas have with cattle so what we're aiming for is to basically clean the plate and what that allows us to do is that it allows us to have a much longer rest period and so during the green growing season let's say we'll have a 21 to 28 day rotation the down here in the south on bermuda or bahia grass we'll take all of the forage and then you'll have a much more leaf-heavy regrowth, and you will have a much better species composition return. You'll have much better fouling. You'll have much better um, animal impact. And one of the things that is required of that is to have animals with nutritional adaptation, genetic adaptation. And as well as a large degree of heat tolerance and parasite resistance, disease resistance, once again, being in the humid subtropical south. So, you know, one of the reasons people don't like to or people leave a lot of residual is because of the, you know, the, the work that Kreider did in, in the 1950s showing that the roots will stop growing if you eat beyond 50 percent of the plant. You know, the problem with that is that if you if you only eat 50% of the plant you're typically taking the the leaves and the top of the plant and you're leaving a lot of stem and the stem is costing you energy the stem continues to sit there and respire it continues to breathe but it doesn't bring in any energy from the outside in an in an amount that is comparative to the leaves so it is still losing that that reserve that's built in the root system and so 
instead of immediately throwing up leaves and then building the business of, of grass plant from, from the ground up and then creating a very efficient solar panel, you've, you've really thinned out your roots. And so the roots have lost a lot of the carbohydrate structure and the carbohydrate storage. And so you end up with thinner roots upon recovery and fewer leaves, a much lower leaf to stem ratio. And so what that allows us to do is then go into the uh, stockpile season with dormant grasses that are a lot heavier in leaf and a lot uh, lower in, in stem, you know, so the, it's, it's definitely a much more difficult uh, style of grazing, the ultra high density non-selective or the total grazing program. It's a much more difficult and, and, and it's much easier to make mistakes and it's a much higher learning curve, but the, the absolute explosive land improvement that I've seen from it is, is really mind blowing. And, and it allows us to really increase our, uh, our productivity and our animals per acre. It's interesting. This grazing management thing, I have no idea what the right thing is. <laughs> it's fine. I'm just reading the book uh, by Tom. I can't remember his last name. Uh, gosh, Ranching Like a 12-Year-Old. Uh, and he talks about how when in his data, he's found that when you have an extended rest period past, I don't remember if it's 40 days or something like that, that uh, I think he gives up 50% of the regrowth after that grazing that he found that the longer the rest period, the worse the regrowth is after that. Once that plant gets to a maturity stage, it's given up its production kind of phase. And then there's other people who say you need to get at least 60 days of rest to, to get, uh, you know, to get more diversity and more production. And then there's people talking about leaving 50% minimum. And then there's this model of taking more and it's like, Oh gosh, I have no clue what is right or what's best, but this is probably the most in-depth explanation I've heard of for why that 50% or what the advantages of, of taking more 50%. And it's interesting that you say it's more complex because in our situation, I seem to find where it's very difficult to take 50% in a diverse plant species mix because they will take 100% of one thing or 90% of one thing and 20% of another thing. And to get an even 50% distribution is difficult, but with high stock density, it's quite easy to take everything down to nine, not down 90% quite a bit more easily. Right. I mean, and you've, you've touched on exactly the, the fundamental issue that both Johann Zietzman and Jaime Elizondo talk about. It's like, it's, it's impossible to take half, leave half. Cause mm -hmm. I mean, that just, as you said, they'll take all of one plant and leave none of the other. And so one of the one of the benefits is you get uniform pressure across yes. all of the forage types, you know. And during the green growing season, then this is why Jaime Elizondo calls it a total grazing program because it's not just take all the forage and then have a long rest period. During the green growing season, you're on a 21 to 28 day rotation, especially. I mean, and that's my context with these Bermuda Bahia grasses that are really fast growing and they lose their value really fast once they become a, a certain maturity. So you're on a 21, 28 day rotation. And what that means is the entire rest of your ranch is, which is about half of it, maybe a little bit more is then resting. And, um, during that big rest period, that's when you're really building a huge amount of soil organic carbon, because, um, I can send you a study that there's a, there's a professor at Oregon state who sent me this, um, study on, on root exudates and the profile of root exudate 
the I mean, for all your listeners who don't know, although most of them will, the root exudate is obviously the organic amino acids, all of the sugars that are kicked out by the roots to to the environment, the soil environment surrounding the roots feeds microbes, microbes die. Um, the profile of root exudates changes dramatically over the lifespan of the plant. So to feed the microbes, the largest variety of root exudates, if you allow the plant to go to maturity, you feed the microbes the largest amount, the largest variety of root exudate, right? And so you're on that green growing season. That that's not getting to go to maturity. You come back and you do a what what you might call a, a deliberate or planned overgraze, if you want to call it that. I, I don't that's what Johan calls it. I don't really like that because you know, if overgrazing to me is 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 when you don't is when you nip that fresh regrowth really fast. Like that's to me. And so anyway, that fifty percent of the ranch that you've set aside, right? That is then your winter stockpile, which works really well for us in the South because it's a lot cheaper to feed a protein supplement and then allow them to go graze that, that lignified, you know, high maturity plant uh, to, to the ground than to feed hay, you know, so that's a lot more cost effective and it's a lot better for the, you know, for the, for the ground because you've cleared it out and you get a much better solar panel regrowth in the spring. Um, and uh, to, back to your point, certainly taking half and leaving half is just not something that actually happens. I mean, that's just yeah. unless you're on some sort of uh, monoculture, then you might get a little bit closer to it. But you're still going to have areas that they like better simply because of what's in the soil, mm -hmm. simply because maybe they peed there less, yeah. you know, so something like that. And I know their response to answer, how do you get more even distribution and leave more is to just increase stock density and take away that selectivity altogether. So they'll just take a bite out of whatever's in front of them. And I guess we've done two to three day moves and we can get some of that. And maybe it's four or five, six day moves, times a day uh, move. And one, I, I don't know if it actually will improve it or increase it. And two, I don't have the time or desire to do that, honestly. And I'm impressed that you're you know, talking three, four day moves or times a day move already. Um, do you feel that you're getting exceptional benefit, you know, that it's worth that time? And especially with two groups, I was surprised that you, well, it, you have your grower, you, you kind of should manage them differently when you're trying to put gains on one and the other is a cow calf type model. But uh I, you know, the, the economical thing and to spread your labor over more animals would be to put them all in one group and move them together. Is that something that you've experimented with and just not found success in the growing group? Or why do you choose to have the separate groups and the movement patterns? Uh, well, because I, I, I have seen the benefits of ultra high density grazing um, from the mother cows. And I've also seen that if you do that with the butcher animals, they don't put on weight. So in order for me to treat the land properly, I have to have, I have to have at least some degree of ultra high density grazing, sure. um, during one year, you know, and also the thing that I, I failed to mention is that green growing section where you're on those fast rotations and then the rest rest sections, those rotate year to year, you know, so you make sure that the area that wrote that, that rested all year, you know, last year, that's where your green growing season activity where, or you might call it the hammer section just for easy. So you're just hammering it, you know, mm -hmm. on that 21, 28 day rotation. And then the next year that, that will rest during the entire warm season. Um, but yeah, so 
one thing about me is that nobody should do what I do. And, and and let me tell you why. If you have an established business and you're on a cash flow treadmill, it and say you just do cow calf, like it will absolutely benefit you to go to a total grazing program. Um, if you have the scale to do it, you know. Um, I, I mean, I can send you some pictures of the stuff that they're doing in Paraguay right now. Some satellite imagery. They have these massive ranches where they're moving. 1200 1500 cows you know four or five six times a day and the i mean simply because labor is cheap but also because they can double triple their stocking rate by doing so and you know that's mm-hmm. always sort of my response is like well if you could triple your stocking rate do you think you could afford another employee you know so yeah. um and what i i had to you know we start we talked about this a little bit in the previous uh conversation but what i did was in order to start from nothing, I had to go do a totally different thing. And I've treated my operation from the very beginning as a performance art, number one, and a research, uh, basically a research facility from the beginning. Because I've never had the scale to be economically viable. And what that has done for me is now it's it's creating investment opportunities uh, from the outside that never would have happened if I had just... Um, if I had just said, okay, well, I can't, I can't go hard because, you know, I only have 50 animals. It doesn't make economic sense. So I created a life where I had the capacity to go as hard as possible, even though, even though I was at a small scale and that itself is the foundation that will create the scale. Um, and that is after five years, that is actually starting to bloom in the background right now. So, um, and that, and that applies to anything in life it really you know the way you do small things is the way you do big things if you you know if you do the small things the what many people seem see as insignificant if you do those perfectly and to the absolute zenith of your abilities then there's no telling there is no way to quantify how that echoes out and what opportunities that will bring you but i know for sure if i had just been like oh i can only move them you know once every two days or once every week because it's just not making me enough money, then I would be exactly at the same place I started five years ago. So what I, you know, I knew from the beginning I had to do what I was doing very conspicuously and do it uh, and, and um, publicize it. And that, that has led to lots and lots and lots of doors opening. So, I mean, for the for the listener who has a business, if you're at a scale where you're making money, total grazing program or ultra high density non selective grazing, if you can learn how to implement it properly, uh, you will make more money because you will be able to graze more more animals certainly, and your land will improve faster if you implement it. Um, it's you know it's being done for all the way from Canada to Mexico, so you know you have to change it a little bit, and you do have to be very very serious about selecting the proper animals that are nutritionally and genetically adapted because one of the other things about leaving uh, residual is that you can get away with having poorer genetics or or say fleshier framier animals that that require more upkeep so if you're if you're forcing the animals to eat the entire plant you need animals that are genetically adapted to lower nutrition and that's where I'm, you know, this might be a nice segue into the next part of the conversation. That's where I'm bringing in these African genetics for yeah. 
to increase the nutritional and uh, adaptation for my for my herd. Yeah, and and I do want to get into that. We touched on it a little bit last time, but I, I want to hear more about it. But I don't want to leave this topic quite yet. Um, okay. There's some things there that you kind of mentioned that intrigued me or interested me and in stuff in this topic or conversation around uh, when is it when does it make sense to start investing more time into the management and stuff is is interesting. And you said that you set up your life to be able to go all in, even if it maybe didn't make economic sense. And I apologize if I misstated that, but how did you, how did you set up your life to be able to do that from the start in order to, you know, kind of set up your business to launch, you know, expand and and launch forward? Sure. Well, I I mean, my family did it as a, as a group. And I will tell you right now that I don't believe in any shape, any way, shape or form that there's anything wrong with having off ranch or off farm income, you know, as, as maybe we discussed last time, you know, the Chinese have a, a saying that's a wise rabbit has three burrows. Right. <laughs> and I think it is a, I think it is a strange manifestation of the ego and basically the, the strange time period over the last hundred years where the United States was super rich and super flush with cheap oil that we could make our living specifically off of a ranch or specifically off of a farm. And I think the, I think the historical norm is that people had multiple, multiple income streams. So, um, so I think, so for starters, I think that I completely reject the idea that the only legitimate, um, you know, uh, orientation of a ranch or farm business is to only have income from that. Now, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be profitable. Like it should absolutely be profitable. I don't I don't want to set things up so that the business has to be subsidized by outside income. That's not what I'm saying at all. You know, so like in the in the very beginning, um that as Sisters Cattle Company up in Oregon, you know, we only were able to sell we're able to, we're actually very proud to sell 25 animals in our second year. But if you're, if you're moving 25 animals at, at, uh, 4,500 a piece, that's over a hundred grand gross. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if it's me and some poly wire and, a you know, a, a 20 year old Suzuki on, on borrowed land, like my costs were super, super low, yeah. you know? So there, that business did not have to be subsidized by out, outside income. And, if you, if you look at it like your life is a business and the cattle, my life is a business, my family's life is a business, and the cattle company is the research uh, and development division, then the R&D section is what eventually comes to the forefront and makes you a lot of money in the future. And that's kind of where we're moving into right now. You know, we viewed it and we deliberately viewed it from the very beginning as a research and development. And maybe that's a function of my... Uh, ability to make content, my ability to articulate I, what I'm doing, my ability to kind of quote unquote be a front man for it. Um, you know, but we took a very hard look at all our assets in terms of connections, in terms of network, in terms of uh, everybody's ability to make money in the family. And we decided uh, that this was the right thing to do, most importantly, because it was because we viewed it, my wife and I primarily, and then my parents uh, secondarily, but still in an important way, we viewed it as a way for us to marry the heritage of ranching on one side and the 
profound interest and importance of environmentalism and conservation um, and naturalism on the other side. So finally, we arrived at this place in the world where ranching could marry the ecology. And we decided, oh, okay, well, that's definitely going to be the fundamental basis of our legacy moving forward. Let's, let's figure out a way we can make that work. So that ended up being the foundation of that. That was the animating principle that everybody was able to get behind to make this quote unquote research and development division happen, which has now blossomed into its own uh, autonomous vehicle, you might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I agree with you that there's nothing wrong with off-farm income. And a lot of the people saying that people with off-farm income aren't real farmers or ranchers or something are probably subsidizing their business with paid for equity from past generations. It's just a different form of subsidization. You know, the operating business itself may just be not as profitable. And so, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that more people need to invest in really building and knowing and understanding a business model before scaling it. Because if you scale something that you don't know is profitable, you haven't done the work to figure out how it works you know, pretty easy to go under, pretty easy to struggle and uh, fail at that too. I've had conversations with people and stuff too, who feel like they've almost hit a limit. Uh, they say, you know, how can I grow my business more? How can I continue to expand? And, and, and I've dug into it with them, you know, and some of the consulting work that I do. And it seems like that the actual limiting factor is that they ran out of off-farm income to subsidize their business's growth. And they just were running this business because it was how they've always done it. And then they come to this, you know, I can't seem to grow anymore. I've hit this wall or something. And we sit down and go through things. And it's like, well, turns out you didn't have a positive gross margin and you were subsidizing it with off-farm income and your income is limited. And you've hit this point now where you can't grow anymore because you can't subsidize anymore. And so, you know, this R&D side of your business to figure out something that works from the start that then you can take and scale rapidly, hopefully, uh, you know, that's, that's so cool. And that's why I've been so more interested lately in really knowing my numbers. Uh, we have a farm that my, you know, family has been on for generations that has a lot of equity in it and stuff that it's, it's can be, if you don't really know your numbers and have the ability to separate your equity holdings from your operating business, financially, you don't know if you really have a business that has the opportunity to scale and when opportunities come up, you can't confidently jump on them. And so I, I applaud you for the work you're doing up front to you know, determine the, this, the viability of your business model. And, and I'd be curious then to learn more about how you're planning to grow and to, to build off of that. Now that you've spent five years, it sounds like building it. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the, the, the business model is, um, well, I mean, if, if I was any other business, like, well, I mean, it sounds like we're in a, in a similar trajectory here. Like to me, beef has always been the small game. Beef is the small game. It's the short game. And you use this four to five years as a research and development. And then what, what are your assets after four to five years of basically experimenting and doing the best you can to create the most efficient, optimal grazing system possible and, you know, networking super hard with mentors and, and bugging the best in the world until they can't not respond to your text messages and, <laughs> and things like that. Like, what is the biggest asset you have at the end of that? Well, the biggest asset you have at the end of that is your brain, like, mm -hmm. right? 
So the, after four to five years, like, yes, we have a, a good brand. Yes, we now um, have been able to uh, capture uh, some land uh, and, and start generating some equity. Uh, yes, we're definitely producing beef, but the, the most important asset after this five years is my brain. And the way to capitalize on that moving forward is number one through consulting. And that, that side of my business is growing that its own enterprise. Number one is consulting. And then beyond that, it's, um, it's taking an opportunity to find, and here's, here's, here's something that people don't seem to understand in, especially in the regenerative space, there is so much institutional and corporate money being thrown in the regenerative space right now, and it's only going to continue over the next decade, that they're going to run out of people to throw the money at. The limiting factor in 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 this whole game is uh, people who actually know and actually do understand how to run a uh, truly regenerative operation. Right now, what's happening, and I'm, I'm seeing it back in Oregon, and um, I'm seeing it in Texas, I'm seeing it everywhere, is that people... Um, who have run their operations traditionally, which, um, and I say this with no judgment, it's sort of a, 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 just sort of a passionless observation that there's, they, so, oh yeah, I'm regenerative. I'll hold up a bucket and I'll take some of that corporate money. And, you know, the people at the institutions, they don't really have any, you know, clue because none of this is data backed at, at this point, you know, very few people have, the data to say, well, here's here are my carbon stocks when I started. Here's my baseline, and here's my improvement in year one, year two, year three in terms of of organic matter increase. And so I can, you know, legitimately say I'm I'm regenerative or I'm regenerating my landscape. So what's going to happen is that that data is going to start to come in, and people are going to see who the managers with the real knowledge and the ability to, cre to create real regenerative results are and P and the institutions, the wall street and the big corporations. And to some degree, um, although a much lesser degree, um, the government is going to be throwing money at the people who have the data to back that up. And so the long-term scale for my business is on one hand, beef is always going to be a product consulting is a product and then three is the formation of businesses that are equity based like land investment funds mm -hmm. like that that's the long term that's the medium to long term uh play and so uh, at the, i mean that's that's always been the the aim and so if if your aim is to sell beef like that's great you limit yourself in the ability you can scale by simply by the square footage of of the amount of land that you have. Mm -hmm. You can't scale that any more than linearly. Um, then beyond that, you can scale consulting a little bit more exponentially, say. And then once you get into, once you prove that you have the expertise and the ability to perform, then you start to network and create uh, alliances with big institutional money. And at that point you have the ability to scale your, I, I guess, business or businesses or enterprises, uh, you know, much more exponentially. Yeah, I agree. It's uh it's interesting. Um, and, and you're on so many different platforms, like, like you're saying, you've got 
the meat business, which is limited by your production model and stuff, but you're, you're consulting kind of you're scaling virtually too, which is interesting with all of the different platforms that you're on with social medias and things and stuff that, which just kind of compounds on itself, builds networks, builds credibility that then makes connections to, yeah, do so many different things. So you've kind of got all these different aspects that are working to each other to kind of compound on each other and grow your business, which is awesome. I, uh, I applaud that, but, um, I don't know. Is there anything else on that? I guess to talk about before we move back into your genetic side. No, I mean, certainly, uh, I think that covers it. I, I would, people do need to take a hard look at themselves to see what they're comfortable doing. I mean, that's the way that I approach the, the business is not, um, uh, is not the way for everybody. And I, and I do have to say that it has evolved. A lot of the reason that I got into this, and this is actually this interesting. Um, I just got back from the, what good shall I do conference in Fredericksburg. Uh, I was out there last weekend. It was, it was really great, but I, in my conversations, both on the panel and in private, I began to see that there is a parallel path forming in regenerative. On one side, you have the institutional side, the Wall Street side, the corporate side, where this this huge amount of money is sort of, you know, you go, you also have the ESG side, where these, you know, these big funds are looking to spend money in a way that makes them feel better and that they're doing, you know, good for the planet. And the other side, the other side of this, is the hyper local, decentralized. Um, I, I more more crunchy granola um, with a little bit of with a taste of prepper slash the economy is going to collapse, you know, on that yeah. on that other side of the and those are those are the two sort of parallel tracks of the regenerative uh, right now. And when I got started, I do have to admit I was much more on the side of the you know the economy is going to collapse and I have to create a way for. Um, for my family to be able to survive. And, you know, and, and as I graduated college in 2009, right in the wake of the 2008 crash and the, the economy was terrible and I had a, a degree in political science. So I was hyper-focused on the political state. And I came to realize at a later, later date that, you know, the first two or three years of my life were characterized by massive instability. So, you know, psychological wounds of a toddler compounded with, uh, the the geopolitical situation upon entering the world led me to a state where I was constantly looking around for the world to collapse. But as I got older and began to really examine those, I, I began to realize that you know that's no way for me personally to live, and was able to kind of alleviate the traumas and stresses that that were manifesting and making me so afraid, and then opened up this this pathway um, to bridging the hyper-local decentralized way and the institutional money side. So the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to bridge these two gaps. I would love to be able to be in a position where I can funnel a lot of that institutional money through myself into these decentralized hyper-local uh, environments but also at the same time, we're always going to have some degree of a centralized food system, and it's always going to be important. But we're always going to have some degree of a local food system, and that's always going to be important. So 
my goal moving forward is to create balance between those two systems and not necessarily side with one or the other. Uh, So I guess my my point there is that um, we all have to take a hard look at ourselves and our psychological motivations so that we can really get in line and united with ourselves before we proceed through some sort of undertaking. Hmm. Well, I, I just had somewhat of a related conversation with Chris Kirsten's of the land to market program, kind of that savory out, uh, savory branch, uh, uh, trying to connect, trying to do this sort of connect, uh, through this verification program, large corporate programs that have money and an interest in regenerative ag with the producers doing it. There's a dozen of those programs out there, probably more and lots of people trying to do it. And I think that's good because yeah, yes, I would love everything to be local. And there's people who talk about this amazing, you know, how amazing it is and there's potential, but you're right. There's always going to be both. And there will always need to be both and there will always be people who can't afford the local regenerative type food products. And so we have to be able to scale this system beyond just the local farm doing their direct market or whatever and stuff. And I hope that we can figure out a way to do that. And I wish people weren't so almost, I don't know if you call it purist or whatever, just like all, all has to be all this way because it's so limiting, not only to the industry, but to them. I mean, like you're saying, there's opportunity, there's money out there in these programs if you open your production if you open your mind beyond what you can do on your own farm i guess so it's not to say that we aren't way too centralized right now we are clearly our food system is way too centralized i mean people talk incessantly about the big packers and you know that i think a, a nice balance would be way you know probably something more similar to the way it was in the 50s and 60s where you had far more uh, regional mid-sized slaughter facilities um, and uh, rather than these mega facilities that are already booked out with these contracts you know and mm-hmm. and and so I mean to some degree we do need to decentralize some we are far too uh, way too far on one side of the spectrum in my opinion right now and what we're seeing and probably the expression of the purists is a reaction to that over centralization and certainly we saw in covid the the effects of that and we you know we saw in dimmit texas the other day the uh um the terrifying consequences of that which uh did, i mean you're familiar with that obviously that is that, that, the dairy that yeah that's yeah. 35 miles from where i grew up as as oh. the crow flies and you know that's that was that's definitely an interesting thing and and uh Especially considering, you know, I, I, I look back on that. I, I, that was a period of a lot of self-reflection for me because my family has been ranching and farming in the Texas Panhandle for five generations, you know. Mm-hmm. So we've been feeding that machine, that that centralized animal feeding operate, operating machine. So I see that happen and immediately I'm like, okay, this feels weird. What's this feeling I'm having? And, and I finally realize it's like, oh, I'm a co-conspirator. Like, this is my fault. Like this, like, like, and suddenly the work that I'm doing with this regenerative side becomes almost recompense or sort of reparations for all of the, uh, for all of the, you know, hours, days, months, years, lifetimes that my family has spent sort of 
unbeknownst to them feeding this centralized animal feeding machine. Um, I remember being a little kid, uh, three or four years old, sitting in the, in the backseat rolling by these mega feedlots in the Texas panhandle being like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know what's going on, but I know that I feel something is not right here. You know, that's, that was, uh, that's something that I have a distinct memory as a child. And, and, you know, as I got, as I got older and the more I learned about specifically in the last five, six, seven years, the more I learned about ecology, the more, you know, it's, it's sort of an ecological nightmare to be pulling these animals off of their, their ecological duty and, um, sort of, um, and I know probably a lot of your listeners will be unhappy about this because, you know, 97% of animals are still finished in feedlots, but, um, but it's just, uh, it's, it's just something that's very, very difficult to support anymore. You know, I was thinking the other day of how wonderful a cow's sense of smell is, you know, how, you know, how far away and how minutely they can smell things. And then imagining for myself what it's like going by a feedlot and Mm -hmm. imagining if my sense of smell was, you know, a thousand times greater, what it would be like to have to live in that environment. You know, that would probably be pretty, pretty horrifying. Unpleasant. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then, you know, you're sitting there breathing in that fecal matter all day long. And then, you know, that becomes part of the tissue that we feed our society. And it's a, um, I know I've gone completely off rails here, uh, um, but uh, I think it's certainly worth, worth examining simply because it's a a matter of conscience. But uh, anyway, I think we're probably done with that section. Shall we (laughs) move on to genetics? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's interesting. There's so many different perspectives. I was just having a conversation with some family over the weekend and stuff. He said, I think everybody can kind of agree at least an animal humane standards and stuff, you know, that we're all on the same page with that. Right. And I was like, well, it's interesting. You kind of say that because, you know, there's some people who define humane animal treatment as just giving the animal food, water, and keeping them, you know, antibiotics to keep them healthy. And then there's some who define it further as letting them express their natural instincts and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it's a complex world with a lot of different perspectives that we're not going to tackle today. So you're right. Let's move, let's move on. But, um, I think we talked a little bit about it last time too. And so we don't probably need to do too much on it, but I do want to hear a little more on this genetic program. You, you've talked about it even yet today about the importance of having these genetics that match and align with your, your production models. So talk about what you're doing with that. In deep East Texas and the, I guess the, the sun belt or the Bible belt, whatever, however you would like to define it, it's characterized it's improving, but it's largely characterized by animals that were not designed for this ecology in any way, shape, or form, right? The, the predominant animal that's growing, that's being grown in the sunbelt is still um, Angus-based, you know. Um, you know, there are some um, Brangus, there are some Brayford, there are some Brahmin and stuff, but it's still, you know, black cattle-based. And you may know that the angus comes from aberdeen scotland but you probably don't know that the record high temperature of all time in aberdeen scotland is 86 degrees fahrenheit (laughs) record high temperature so we are we are growing an animal that still has the genetic memory of a cold climate right so 
that's why it's been so important for me to look at things completely from the standpoint of genetic fitness and and sort of beef as an afterthought, right? So that's why I I got the the descendants of the Spanish Criollo cows, which have a high degree of uh, African boss Taurus uh, expressed in them and have been feral in North America or spent 350 years feral, feral in North America before they were sort of rounded up and, and uh, semi-domesticated in the 1800s, which, I mean, that's the Corriente cow that I, that I have a bunch of Corriente mothers and have been, I've brought in the Mashona bull. So, I mean, most people probably know that the Corriente is a descendant of the Spanish Criollo cow, which came here in late 1400s, early 1500s. They got loose. They uh, interbred and they basically went feral for 350 years, survival of the fittest type environment. And then they were rounded up and redomesticated. So you ended up with, um, you know, quite a few generations of, na of natural selection there. And so you ended up with very um, disease and parasite resistant animal, very hardy animal, really great feet. And so that's what I used as the foundation. Um, one of the great benefits of that is Corriente means, um, in Spanish means common or low quality, you know. And so what that means is, since they're only used for roping stock, basically, uh, they're very affordable. You know, so we're we're squarely in a one man's trash is another man's treasure situation here. <laughs> sure. Um, so, um, so then, so I've taken these animals, and even though they have been, um, they they were subjected to many, many years of natural selection over the last 100 years with the, you know, winter feeding and antibiotics and dewormers, the, the, some poor genetics have been allowed to proliferate. So right now I'm definitely in the process of weeding out the poor genetics from my, from my herd. And the, obviously the most important and quickest way you can have genetics genetic improvement in your herd is with your bull selection you know culling is not genetic selection but typically you know using the appropriate bulls um, either naturally or through artificial insemination is the best way you can improve your genetics and um, you know when i discovered uh, man cattle and veld by zietzman and started reading about mashona cattle and <clears throat> reading about his work um, in zimbabwe um, comparing the results of breeding his, you know, he had, he had beef master cross cows. Um, and then he started use, he started AB testing beef, you know, high, high quality beef master bulls with the local village bulls there in, um, in Zimbabwe that nobody wanted to use all the white men, uh, with who he, he called, uh, the men with high heeled boots and big hats, um, they were, you know, pushing these improved animals. And the, when he started using these village bulls, which were uh, in Afrikaans are called boss bulls, um, generally regarded as trash by the, the uh, agricultural community in Southern Africa, the village bulls just started wiping the floor with these high-powered beef master bulls that he was using. And so after like 13, 14 generations, he had the highest selling average bulls in the entirety of Zimbabwe because he had these, you know, these selection standards that um, created massively fertile uh, animals. And so 
when I learned about that, it ought, you know, it completely made sense to me. And I bought in hook, line and sinker, especially in the context of the ultra high density grazing, because if you throw poor, poorly adapted animals, you know, say large frame, poorly adapted, um, European animals in an ultra high density grazing situation in the American South, you're going to, everybody's going to be in real trouble, you know? And so the, if you're going to implement a total grazing, uh, paradigm, total grazing program, ultra high density, non-selective severe grazing program, you, you absolutely have to start, uh, looking at your genetics very quickly. So I learned about the Mashona. Um, the Thule is also great. The Nguni is also great. Um, the Afrikaner, not quite as great, although there's still some really good animals. Um, but Mashona is, is the one that you're going to be able to find in the United States, uh, the most. And, you know, they just haven't been manipulated by human standards for, you know, they haven't been designed with the end product in mind. They've been designed with, uh, survival in mind. And, you know, anybody who's been following me on social media knows this already, but I'll just go ahead and go, go over it with you. Like the Mashona comes from Northern Zimbabwe where they were basically selected by the, the Shona tribe for centuries um, the, the deal there is they have to bring these, they have to herd these animals, um, every day and they have to bring them back to the corral at night. If they don't, they'll get eaten by lions. So mm -hmm. what you end up with in this, in this, um, hot, humid, um, sometimes drought ridden environment in Northern Zimbabwe is an animal that's very hardy and having gone through several periods of aggravated selection. Now, what do I mean by aggravated selection? Aggravated selection is when you have a really bad drought and you have to walk two to three hours to forage and two to three hours back, what you get is a, an abbreviated grazing period. So you only have five hours to graze instead of the eight that most cattle require, right? So you end up with the, the animals with the, the biggest gut capacity are the ones that survive because they could eat really fast and take in enough forage for the, for the night. And animals with increased gut capacity do a lot better on the poor forage that we have here in humid subtropical uh, southeast United States. So um, you in the what the Shona tribe did for uh, you know genetic selection, uh, whether they were aware of it or not, I'm sure they were uh, more aware of it than um, than we might initially think. Uh, is they created basically a genetic jewel that is going to complement all of the, the European cattle throughout the United States in, in a really beautiful way. I like to conceptualize it very simply as if you took Angus and dumped them in Africa and then came back in a thousand years, you'd end up with the Mashona, you know, the ones that survived and proliferated, mm -hmm. you, you know, they slick coat, parasite resistant, disease resistant, uh, very, very heat tolerant, very early sexually maturing. They put on fat and weight very, very fast. Um, but also, also, um, if you look at it from a, a perspective of absolute daily gain, you're, you might be a little bit disappointed because fat weighs a lot less than, than lean meat. So they put on fat, they put on a lot of fat, you know, it's a really great drought tolerance. So, um, that they don't have as much of an average daily gain as m many of your other breeds, but from a pure efficiency standpoint, their calories into calories stored, they're, uh, they're, they're very, very efficient. And, um, you know, with the overall goal of lowering inputs, which we haven't really talked about, but that's, you know, everybody's goal is to lower inputs. And especially if you're on a winter stockpile of, of 
low quality forage, you want an animal that's extremely nutritionally adapted with a large gut capacity. So you, you know, only have to protein supplement them minimally. And, uh, there are some parts of, of the world that, uh, you know, if you're not, um, buried in snow, that if you have, you know, higher quality, cool season forages for stockpile, you know, the, the protein supplementation should be only very, very minimal. Um, but down here, the protein is so low in our winter stockpile that, um, we have to supplement protein more so than people in, in other parts of the world. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic explanation of it. And it, it, it's interesting. I, I think I mentioned the last time I had a very similar conversation with Rob Pierce about the Southern heat tolerant breeds that they're kind of, we're kind of developing for the PCC program. And he talked about a lot of these same things and comparing them to even red Angus and stuff, how they just excel in, in those heat stress environments and stuff. But you mentioned a few times, you know, not keeping in mind this end product, uh, focusing purely on the cow calf. And I'm a believer, I guess, at, at the moment anyway, that right now the market isn't paying us a premium to focus on meat quality and things for the feedlot and for the end consumer. Right now, they're not paying enough to justify the additional cost to raise the high quality meat product that they think they want and that we're better suited. We're more profitable as cow calf producers. If we're not selling meat, if we're selling weaned calves, doing it in a low input model and selling a calf that maybe isn't quite as adapted. But that being said, I, I think, I don't believe that we are experiencing poor quality, poor meat quality. We're, we're able to do it. And so I guess I'll ask you that, um, you know, it's not a focus on meat quality. You've said it's not a focus on that end product, but are you, would you say that your end product, I mean, to, not quote directly, but in, in, uh, Brian Alexander's conversation with, uh, Schiffelbein, he, he talked a lot about his Corianni cattle and Don Schiffelbein talked about, you know, it's great and all that you're able to produce low input cattle, uh, cow and, and make money and stuff. But if nobody will eat the product, have you really succeeded? And I get kind of frustrated when people talk like that, cause they act like this is just hockey puck steak that nobody wants to touch. And I mean, are you able to produce a high quality meat product or how are you still producing quality beef while focusing on the low input production model? Well, I mean, the first thing that I would, that I would ask you is how do you define quality beef? Because this is, this is one thing that bugs me, right? Quality, there is no such thing as quality per se. There are things have qualities, you know, mm -hmm. um, if your, if your definition of quality is a flavorful, tender cut of meat, then I would ask you, what do you mean by flavorful? Because I've had, you know, in the last five years, I've had maybe three grain fed steaks. They all seemed tasted like nothing to me. They all tasted, yeah. they were all lacking in flavor, you know, whereas you know, we butchered a five-year-old Corianni cow last year that was, the, she wasn't tick fat, but she had a, a nice amount of marbling in her. And the flavor is just incredible. Um, the, uh, my father-in-law is a Spaniard raised in a little village in the, uh, the uh, in the Sierras in Andalusia. And so the dude knows what old school beef, you know, nutritional flavor, dense beef tastes like. And he's like, this is just what beef tasted like when I was, when I was a little kid, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, and I've had other people say, you know, there's just so much more music happening in my mouth when I'm eating this, this steak, I don't even, I don't even, and this is my personal, this is my personal opinion, obviously. Um, and you know, nothing knocking whatever, what everybody else likes, but I don't even like the taste of, of grain finished beef. 
anymore. So when it comes to quality, you know, for me, quality is something that if you, if you, if it's tender, great. If it's flavorful, it's, if you, it's like this, you don't, you don't hit the, you don't hit a golf ball farthest by focusing on how hard you can swing. You focus on your form and then you slowly and slowly and slowly get better. And eventually you hit it much farther than the people who are focusing on how hard they can hit it. And so if I focus on having the healthiest soil, if I focus on the animals that are the most efficient, that stay the healthiest, if I'm moving them four times a day onto a fresh nutritional profile, I'm going to end up with the highest quality product. No, mm -hmm. that's the that's the way I look at it. You know, if you have your animals, um, if your animals are all you know dewormed and um, set up for success, and then you turn them out loose on an, on a pasture where you only move them once every uh, month, you know they're they're not going to be eating this nice fresh forage every day. You know that th there's going to be a difference in the taste, and also, you know, every every time I go out there to move them, um, they get an endorphin rush because they know good stuff is happening. So, and I would much rather get an, eat an animal that has four endorphin rushes per day than an animal that doesn't, you know, they, their body is full is filled with feel good hormones every time, every time they're moved, you know? So, um, so in terms of a quality product, you know, when I was in Oregon, all of my customers were repeat customers and yeah. I was finishing, I was finishing um, basically what I called British, uh, British composites, which were, they were all some form of Angus, Hereford and Shorthorn, um, mm -hmm. at 18 to 20 months on cover crops. And, you know, our biggest, uh, customer were vegetarians from Portland. And, mm -hmm. you know, people said, I, there were many people who was like, I, I only eat beef that, that you raise. I, I only be, eat beef that you grow. And, and so many people are like, this is the best, you know, beef I've ever had. What have I been eating my whole life? Um, that, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, the, so I, I think that a qual, I think that a grass, a, a grass fed grass finished cut of steak with adequate, uh, with adequate marbling is, um, it eats better in my opinion than, than a grain, grain fed beef. But if you're into mouthfeel and tenderness or any, you want a steak to melt in your mouth, like it's definitely grass finished beef is not for you. You know, and mm -hmm. one thing I also uh, like to say or, or like to think about is that, you know, we have one of the most weak jawed civilizations in the history of the world. And we're so pampered and um, and spoiled and, you know, we're like, OK, we, we expect our flesh to melt apart in our mouth. Like cavemen did not expect flesh to melt in their mouth like if you want to build your 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 jaw and your and you want to have appropriate dental health like the 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 data is coming out very clear that and and has come out for a long time that 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 children babies who eat difficult to chew food have a much better expression of dental health of <laughs> of of jaw growth you know so we're not designed to be eating you know, yeah. porridge and, and grain fed beef. Like, you know, we're designed to masticate and to have these really strong jaws, um, that will pull all of that nutrition out. So, um, so I, I'm not worried about the quality of the product at all. You know, yeah. it's just, just, you know, don't, 
don't take a thin old cow and expect it to, to, you know, to make people happy. That's for sure. Even though last night I had, you know, I had some arm steak off of a thin old cow that we butchered last year. I, I pounded it with a tenderizer and I flash cooked it and then cut it up in tiny little pieces and it it was great. So, you know, like, yeah, yeah. no, I, that's, well, first of all, that's an interesting perspective on the, the, the jaw and everything. I've never heard that in a, in a conversation around this, discussion of beef but i also just agree and i i almost just kind of wanted to hear those kind of testimonies that you kind of have heard from customers and ourselves we've got hundreds of customers that buy beef from us regularly and love it and so that's why i get frustrated when people say that you know that's great you want to do this low input beef model production or you know even separate from grass finishing you know it doesn't have to be grass versus grain but just a low input cow that can thrive on a natural environment but you're giving up quality and you're going to have a terrible beef that nobody enjoys. And it's a horrible eating experience. And it's like, that to me is kind of a bogus argument. And so I get frustrated when I hear that. And then there's just the separate conversation is that if, if they want what they want, which is this focus on tenderness, carcass traits and everything and stuff like that, then the market needs to be able to pay the premium that it, it requires to actually cover the expenses to, to produce that. Because if, if it's not my job as a cow-calf producer to subsidize the feedlot and the packer industry. Uh, it's my job to produce money and profit for myself and my my business. And the vast majority of cow-calf producers are selling weaned calves, not retaining ownership through the feedlot. And so they should focus on genetics that make them profitable, not the next. And if the next person wants a certain type that feeds better than the low input, then, then they need to pay the premium that covers the cost that the cow-calf producer will incur to provide that for them. Right. And, and there's another premium that doesn't get really talked about a lot. And, and it's the, the ultra high end, uh, customer wants, uh, wants something that's more than a cut of beef. They want a story. They want mm-hmm. something that's associated with it. And so that's a, another one of the motivations for me, not really concerning myself with the beef at all, aside for, from an afterthought. And if I lay down the philosophy that these animals are eco-engineers, in other words, creating animals that are so in harmony with their environment that they require very little input to perform well, then that itself is something that the customer gets very, very excited about. Because now they're a part of something bigger than just having a meal. And they will pay a premium for that if you tell that story adequately. And, you know, that's why uh, my my entire focus is on, okay, these are eco-engineers. So this is why I've finished them completely in a way that, and grazed them in a way that improves the, the ecology, you know. And part of the reason that I'm doing that is because, A, nobody does that. Everybody, at least to some degree, is thinking about the beef in you know and and the final outcome um and that's that's why from the beginning i'm like i i want to do something radically different from everybody else you know i'm just going to say i'm not even going to think about it at all it's like making art and splashing you know like splashing shit on the canvas you know i'm not really trying to make a a boat on the waves and you know Mm -hmm. i'm trying to create something that's just that's a pure ecological expression and if you create a pure ecological expression, the movement that is happening in our in our society right now, especially in rich countries, is so in line with that 
that people are more willing to pay a premium for that because you know that it the premium to create an ecologically harmonious animal is maybe a similar premium in cost to uh, put a huge amount of marbling on it because that's where all the extra labor and moving the cattle multiple times a day comes in. You know, that's where, you know, searching out and getting the best um, adapted genetics is. And so, the, so it's a different premium that, that people are, are paying for and that, and that, that people get, you know, quite excited about. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree with that. And I like the perspective on just focusing on the, ecological outcome and not the meat outcome and it's kind of like the if you build it they will come like if you build a system and a model that is focused on that there are people who value that will support you whether or not the product is exactly what they expected or not they just will love this system so much that they're gonna love it <laughs> right absolutely they're already invested you know yes. before they even take their first bite which is important but also at the same time i've noticed so much that my children will not eat beef that comes from other places they they just don't like it they don't i mean so whether that's that mine is better or whether that's we eat what we're trained to eat you know that um it it speaks to the whole the palate of the average american like the average american is very much trained to uh to the you know, feedlot beef, the feedlot grain finished beef. And that's, that's fine. But what that means is that, that we can, you know, alter ourselves, you know, it's like some people like IPAs if they, you know, they're, they're, if they're trained themselves to enjoy it, you know, like, um, Australians like Vegemite, right? If you ever tried any of that stuff, it tastes terrible, but Australians <laughs> love it because they've been eating it since they were a kid, you know? And so another part of that perspective is that I firmly believe that, you know, nature made us, nature made, if you make animals that are in line with nature and they behave in a way that is natural, they will then create a product that is much more in line with us, with our digestive system, with, with us as products of nature, you know, like we're designed to eat natural products, you know, and so it, it makes perfect sense to me that our bodies, our minds, uh, and our taste buds will, if we give it a chance and, and aren't too indoctrinated with, uh, the, the momentum of our past, uh, it, it makes sense to me that we will at least have a chance of, of enjoying it. You know, I, I haven't had very many negative, uh, feedbacks at all, except the only negative feedback I've ever had on any of my beef was from a butcher shop owner in oregon who specialized on hyper grain-fed holstein beef you know that's yeah. what they were that's what they were used to and so <laughs> they didn't they didn't dig on what i was making at all um yeah. so but you know well, that's a that's just a really interesting thought that i hadn't really considered is like i wonder what if you could go back and ask the people when they first started grain finishing beef what they thought because it was probably like, oh, this is different. I don't know that I like this. But over time and generations and decades, it's become the norm. And so now when you go back to a forage finished beef, it's just different. And so it's not that it's bad. It's just different than what we've been raised on our entire lives. And, and you know, in time, you could shift to where grain finished is the odd or the weird or the different flavor. Again, it just takes a 
time and takes generations and stuff. That That's an interesting perspective I hadn't considered specifically is that this isn't just bad because it's not what people like. It's just people don't like it because they've been trained to eat something different. They've been spending their entire lives eating something different and it's unusual. Right. But I, it's like you mentioned, we hear it from customers all the time. This is what it used to taste like when I was on the farm, grandpa's farm or something like that. I remember this and it's like going back to this positive memory that they used to have. And it's the people probably who think it's not as good, who have never had that experience that never, you know, grew up enjoying and, and eating this type of beef. And it's interesting. Right, and, wh and what have you just provided those people? You provided a time travel experience yeah. for these people. Yeah. You took yeah. them literally back to their past. You connected them to their childhood. And yeah. that is worth the premium. Nobody goes to Applebee's and is connected with their, <laughs> ch their, their childhood, right? Yeah. You know, it's like the, if, you, if you create a product that takes kid, people back to being a kid, like that's priceless. That yeah. is priceless. And reconnecting, like you take them back to their childhood on the farm, like who's there? Like their dead grandparents are there in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You're, 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 you're time traveling. You're bringing yeah. people back from the dead. Like this yeah. is more than just a cut of beef, man. This yeah. is, this is, this is connection with things that are, that are far bigger than just a meal. Yes. Yeah. Great point. And we're already in over an over an hour here. And I, I was thinking this might be a shorter one, but, uh, um, are there any last thoughts you have, um, that you want to share here as we wrap up? Uh, no, I, you know, I, I think, uh, well, let's see here. I think, I think ranchers and farmers and as we continue to understand the importance of ruminants on the landscape, I think eventually we're going to see that farmers and ranchers are going to have a much higher status than they have currently. I think farmers and ranchers, people who manage the movement of ruminants across the ecology are going to be some of the most important people on the planet. Um, the more that we understand about how herds have kept our climate and our ecosystems regulated, and the more that I see it personally on a day-to-day -day basis, the more I realize that if, if this world is important and if being alive is important, then herds of animals keeping the cycles moving is of paramount importance. So anybody out there who is on a day-to-day -day basis doing this, you know, I certainly salute you. And at this conference, there were like, there were, there were, I met two people in the span of an hour who were like, I'm from the city. I don't know anything about ranching. I just got my first internship or, you know, I just, and these people are like, People see something that that goes back to their deep, deep nervous system, and they're they're like, okay, there's something way more natural about this. There's something way more uh, in tune with the way that my body exists in this temporal reality, and the way that my nervous system interacts with the environment. Um, and so I think I think there are going to be a lot more people entering into the stream of ranching and farming who have zero experience. So what that means is those of us 
who are shepherding these animals also will be shepherding an entirely new generation of people into the into the industry which means that we have a massive responsibility that will echo a long way into the future yeah i agree there's a more and more a focus just to on the yeah the impact that we have i think was largely overlooked for so long and now unfortunately for a lot of farmers it's you have a negative impact but that brings even more importance to the role of those doing good so i think you're right and i hope i hope that people will take advantage of all the resources we have to start shifting and and making the role and the importance of farmers better and a total just a better perspective on it but um, I guess share where people can find you, where people can uh, learn more or reach out if they want to. Yeah, well, you can find me uh, just east of Lufkin, Texas, first and foremost. Um, website is fireandsalt.com. Instagram is fireandsaltbeef. The TikTok is just at fireandsalt. Um, those are the two primary areas. I think you can find me on Facebook, too. All of my Instagram stuff goes directly through to Facebook. I never look at the Facebook, so I have no idea what's happening there. Sure. Uh, but I am on the Instagram and the TikTok all the time. And if you have any questions, um, if you want to reach out, tell me what an idiot I am. I always appreciate those comments. So um, I'm available for for your abuse at uh, at Fire and Salt Beef on Instagram and Fire and Salt on TikTok. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Hobbs. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Jared. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.